It is Labor Day weekend here in America, and what could be timelier than an episode about Labor Day in Chicago? Yes, Labor Day in Chicago, a time for brats, beer, picnics, maybe some 16-inch softball, and a day off before the public school kids are back in class. It also signals the start of my favorite season, fall. Here are a few things you may not know about Labor Day and Chicago's role in how Labor Day as a holiday came to be. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. A quick overview. The first Labor Day parade in U.S. history was held on Tuesday, September 5th, 1882 in New York City, during which 10,000 unpaid workers marched from City Hall to Union Square. The first state bill for a Labor Day holiday was introduced into the New York legislature, but the first to become law was passed in Oregon in February of 1887. Before that year's end, four more states, New York, New Jersey, Colorado, and Massachusetts, created their Labor Day holiday by legislative enactment. By the end of the 1880s, Nebraska, Connecticut, and Pennsylvania had put their Labor Day holiday into place. By 1894, 23 more states had adopted the holiday, and on June 28, 1894, President Grover Cleveland signed a law making the first Monday in September of each year a legal holiday in the United States. Of course, to get to this point, we need to step back a few years. According to the census, Chicago had a population of roughly 503,000 in 1880, One decade later, that number had doubled to nearly 1.1 million. With this influx of people and the rise of the Industrial Revolution, jobs in the stockyards and factories were in demand, especially among uneducated immigrants new to the city. Employers often took advantage of those in need of jobs by making them work long hours for little pay and few benefits in unclean and often dangerous conditions. The average American around this time worked 12-hour days, seven days a week, just to make the most basic living wages. Despite restrictions in some states, children as young as five and six years old worked in factories, mills, and even mines across the country, earning less than adults doing similar jobs. Respiratory diseases of the day, such as tuberculosis, were common and spread easily in these environments. As children working in these factories were small, employers were able to squeeze more of these young workers into already cramped spaces. Children were often depended on by their families to help bring in income, so they were less likely to speak out for fear of losing work, and they certainly would not know how to unionize. This topic was touched on in episode 105 of this podcast in discussing Marie Connolly Owens, the first female police officer and an active enforcer of child welfare and labor laws. Here is another sobering thought. In 1900, 18% of all American workers were under the age of 16. As hard as that may be to believe, consider this. OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, wasn't established until April 28, 1971. 
after President Richard M. Nixon signed it into law on December 29, 1970. Although labor strikes and workers protesting for safer working conditions and an eight-hour workday were common throughout the 1880s, one incident in Chicago in May of 1886 brought more attention to the rising discontent than ever before. On May 1st, 1886, industrial workers across the U.S. went on strike. Their primary demand, that eight-hour workday. In Paul Average's book, The Haymarket Tragedy, published in 1984, Average writes that 80,000 people marched down Michigan Avenue that day, and another 10,000 workers employed by the lumberyards held a separate march. Two days later, on May 3rd, 1886, demonstrators clashed with police at a strike at McCormick Reaper Works in Chicago. Several strikers were wounded, and reportedly one was killed. Angered by the Reaper Works incident, a media labor activist met the next day near Haymarket Square off Desplaines Street in Chicago. Here is how Time magazine summed up the events in their May 9, 1938 issue. A few minutes after 10 o'clock on the night of May 4, 1886, a storm began to blow up in Chicago. As the first drops of rain fell, a crowd in Haymarket Square in the Packing House District began to break up. At 8 o'clock, there had been 3,000 persons on hand listening to anarchists denounce the brutality of the police and demand the eight-hour day, but by 10, there were only a few hundred. The mayor, who had waited around in expectation of trouble, went home and went to bed. The last speaker was finishing his talk when a delegation of 180 policemen marched from the station a block away to break up what remained of the meeting. They stopped a short distance from the speaker's wagon. As a captain ordered the meeting to disperse and the speaker cried out that it was a peaceable gathering, a bomb exploded in the police ranks. It wounded 67 policemen, of whom seven died. The police opened fire, killing several men and wounding 200, and the Haymarket tragedy became a part of U.S. history. In addition to the seven police officers who were killed, four civilians died. Numerous foreign-born radicals were arrested by the police, and in August of 1886, eight men were convicted by a not-so-impartial jury without any evidence implicating them. Seven of the men received the death sentence, and the eighth received a 15-year prison sentence. In November of 1887, four of the men were hanged. Of the remaining three, one committed suicide on the eve of his execution by igniting a dynamite blasting cap in his mouth smuggled in by another inmate. A significant portion of his face was blown off, and he lived another six hours in excruciating pain before dying. Reacting to widespread outrage at the trial's proceedings, Illinois Governor Richard J. Oglesby commuted the death sentences of the last two to life in prison. In 1893, Governor John P. Altgeld pardoned the three still-living activists. The true identity of the bomb maker and the person who threw the bomb has never been determined. Although often referred to as the Haymarket Affair, Haymarket Incident, Haymarket Riot, and more recently the Haymarket Tragedy, the McHenry Plain Dealer newspaper on August 11, 1886, used a different phrase when they included a mention of Chicago physicians presenting bills in the amount of $9,528. 
That's nearly $263,000 in today's money for, quote, attending the victims of the Haymarket slaughter at the county hospital. In the 1880s, industrialist George Pullman, known for his Pullman Railroad sleeping car, constructed a model town adjacent to his huge factory on Chicago's south side. Jack Kelly, author of The Edge of Anarchy, The Railroad Barons, The Gilded Age, and The Greatest Labor Uprising in America, wrote a piece in the Smithsonian Magazine in January of 2019 called The Rise and Fall of the Sleeping Car King. In it, he discusses Pullman and his newly developed neighborhood, which featured the Midwest's first indoor shopping mall, an elegant library, parks, playing fields, and neat brick homes for the workers. A local clergyman said it was, quote, how cities should be built. Of George Pullman, the Chicago Times predicted that, quote, future generations will bless his memory, end quote. It was a pretty brilliant move for Pullman, one that has been copied by others for decades by essentially giving his workers all they needed in one area, the area under his control, money spent would stay in Pullman's pockets. In 1893, during a nationwide recession, Pullman laid off hundreds of employees and cut wages for many of the remaining workers by 30% to keep the company profitable. Meanwhile, he refused to lower rents or store prices in the Pullman Company town where many of the remaining employees lived. At the end of a two-week work period, once rent was deducted from their checks, workers were often left with just a few dollars. In May of 1894, angry Pullman workers walked out, and the following month, the American Railway Union declared a sympathy boycott of all trains using Pullman cars. The Pullman strike effectively halted rail traffic and commerce in 27 states from Chicago to the West Coast. Rioting broke out in rail yards. Passengers were stranded. Across the country, the price of food, coal, and other commodities skyrocketed. Mines and lumber mills had to close due to lack of transportation. Power plants and factories ran out of fuel and resources. This prompted the General Managers Association, a group that represented Chicago's railroad companies, to request assistance from the federal government in shutting the strike down. By the end of June 1894, 125,000 workers on 29 railroads quit rather than handle Pullman cars. On June 29th, a few members of the crowd attending a speech in Blue Island, Illinois, set fire to nearby buildings, and derailed a locomotive attached to a U.S. mail train. U.S. Attorney General Richard Olney used that incident as the reason to ask for an injunction against the strike and its leaders from the Federal District Court in Chicago, which was approved on July 2nd. The following day, President Grover Cleveland sent federal troops to Chicago to enforce the injunction. Illinois' pro-labor governor, John Peter Altgeld, who had already called out state militia troops to prevent violence, was outraged, calling the government's actions unconstitutional. Strikers showed their defiance toward the troops by erecting barricades at the rail yards and overturning rail cars. On July 6th, approximately 6,000 rioters destroyed hundreds of rail cars in the South Chicago Panhandle Yards. 
These 6,000 federal and state troops, 3,100 police officers, and 5,000 deputy marshals in Chicago were not able to quell the violence. On July 7th, National Guardsmen fired into the mob, killing as many as 30 people and wounding others. The strike gradually ended and trains resumed their normal schedules. Federal troops pulled out on June 20th and by early August, the Pullman strike was declared over. Just a few weeks after was the first Labor Day holiday. In Chicago, on Monday, September 4th, 1894, the unions turned out with full ranks, ready to parade in the streets. Although a heavy rain was falling that morning, the various labor unions began to assemble, and by 10 o'clock a.m. local time, the word to march was given in front of Bricklayers Hall, located on the northwest corner of Peoria and Monroe Streets, in what is now considered Chicago's West Loop neighborhood. From the 1st Division, the 3,000-strong Carpenters Union, until the very end of the parade, the 10-person Theatrical Stage Employees Union. The parade proceeded past tens of thousands of onlookers, pausing for a bit by the Lincoln Monument in Lincoln Park for 35-year-old Mayor John Patrick Hopkins, the youngest mayor ever elected to that position and the first of nine Irish-American Catholic mayors in Chicago to review the procession. At the end of the parade was a celebratory picnic at Ogden's Grove, which included contests and prizes. According to a newspaper account, police were on hand at Ogden's Grove, but even pickpockets dared not enter. I was not familiar with Ogden's Grove, but in doing some digging, found it was a park-slash-picnic spot at that time at Willow Street, where it meets Clybourne Avenue just north of North Avenue. I found a great map of that area from the 1894 Chicago Lumber District's Guide. This is what I do for all of you. Uh, It was known as the North Branch Lumber District, which I'll post on the Chicago History Podcast social media pages. If you know the general area, the land on which Ogden's Grove was situated now has a Bed Bath & Beyond, Trader Joe's, a Patagonia. You get the idea. As for George Pullman, after the rail strike debacle, his public image never recovered. The federal commission that investigated the strike judged that his company's policies toward the workers was, quote, behind the age, end quote. The Illinois Supreme Court eventually ordered the Pullman Company to sell off the model town, and it was annexed by the city of Chicago. George Pullman died three years after the strike of a heart attack at age 66. So fearful was he that his enemies might dig up his body to desecrate his corpse, he left instructions that his body be encased in a lead-lined mahogany coffin, sunk in a concrete block, and placed in a tomb made of reinforced concrete covered with asphalt and tar paper, followed by a layer of steel rails bolted at right angles with another layer of concrete poured on top. An article in the October 24th, 1897 Chicago Tribune included the remark, No monarch under the pyramids sleeps more securely. Pullman is buried at Graceland Cemetery in Chicago. A statue dedicated to the policemen who died due to the violence at Haymarket Square was dedicated at that site of the riot in 1889. 
Over the years, that statue was subject to vandalism and other damage, including bombings. There was even a 24-hour guard put in place in the early 70s by then-Mayor Richard J. Daley. The statue was eventually relocated to Chicago Police Plaza. In September of 2004, a 15-foot bronze memorial dedicated to the Haymarket incident by sculptor Mary Brogger was unveiled. Today, this memorial marks the exact location where a freight wagon, which was being used as a platform for the speakers, was located when the bomb was thrown into the crowd. It can be seen at 175 North Displane Street. A monument to the men convicted in connection to the riot was erected in 1893 at Waldheim Cemetery in Forest Park, Illinois, where they are buried. Waldheim Cemetery is now known as Forest Home Cemetery. The Haymarket Martyrs Monument was declared a National Historic Landmark in February of 1997 and was refurbished in 2011 at a rededication ceremony. This monument includes an inscription on the steps from August Spees, one of the men convicted. It reads, The day will come when our silence will be more powerful than the voice you are throttling today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's episode, and as always, I'd love to hear from you if you have any questions about anything covered today or have a different topic you think might be a good fit for a future episode of the Chicago History Podcast. I can be reached by email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. I will be posting news articles, pictures, and ads from back in the day related to this episode on the Chicago History Podcast social media pages. Check it out and give us a follow. Thanks as always to John K. Schneider for creating the Chicago History Podcast logo and the art used on the social media pages. He can be found at angeleyesartjks on Instagram or via email at angeleyesartjks at gmail.com. If you would, I would appreciate it if you took a moment to like, subscribe, and kindly review this podcast wherever you listen, and tell a friend. No, tell three friends. It helps us get the word out and reach new history fans and fans of Chicago. Get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in, and stay safe. Thanks for listening.